At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a world full of information, literally at our fingertips. Among all the claims of truth in the world, it can be hard to separate fact from fiction. This is often the case when it comes to the Christian faith. Do we understand the truth of what we believe, and can we articulate it to others? In The Essentials, Why Truth Matters, we'll use the affirmations of the Apostles' Creed as a guide to teaching us the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Join us each week as we affirm the foundational truths of Christianity so we can stand on the bedrock of God's truth and share that good news with the world. Amen. Well, you guys can all be seated. Good morning. Good morning. Grateful to be with you all this morning. If I'm a little groggy, please forgive me. Um, I was just on the men's retreat, which is still going on now. I actually think our men from our church are in session right now. So please be praying for them. If you think about them, um, there's about 12 or so men from our campus who are up Uh, near Cadillac, Michigan. Uh, So please be praying for them. As we come now to the preaching of God's word, would ask you to please take your Bibles and open them with me to John chapter eight. We're gonna continue worshiping the Lord through his word. We'll be in John chapter eight, starting in verse two. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees then brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. But what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have something to charge him with. But Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And they continued to ask him. And he stood up and said to them, Let he who is without without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go now and and sin no more. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We know that it is powerful. We know that your word will not return void. And so, Lord, please let the meditations of my heart and the words of my lips be pleasing to you this morning. Would you please open our eyes that we might see, open our ears that we might hear, and open our hearts that we might be forgiven. We thank and ask you in Jesus' name, and amen. Well, if you have the ESV Bible, you might see a little note in brackets right above uh, John chapter 8. It says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. Uh, That's not a misprint. It's not a typo. Um, Most scholars would say that this account that we just read through was not in the original text of John's gospel. This isn't necessarily something to fear over or something to get worried about. It just means it wasn't included in John's original gospel. But with that being said, also we shouldn't fear because this is certainly an account that, that could have happened. In fact, most scholars would say it did happen. It just wasn't original to John's gospel. We see many themes throughout this uh, 
this encounter, mainly the themes of the Pharisees accusing Jesus of something and then Jesus extending mercy to someone who does not deserve it. This is a, a very common theme of John's gospel. So just wanted to clear the air with that so that no one's worried about that section of our text. So as we continue in our series on the Apostles' Creed, this has now been about nine weeks or so, we've been journeying through the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed was a second or third century work that was drafted by Christians essentially to, to outline what we believe. Like, uh, like, bumper cars in a, or like bumpers in a bowling alley that kind of determine the boundaries, this is what the Apostles' Creed was meant to do. And these statements that we read behind me are all meant to be read in the affirmative, right? I believe in this. I believe in that. I believe in the Holy Spirit, and I believe in the Holy Universal Church. I believe in the communion of saints. And finally, the section that we're going to look at today, I believe in the forgiveness of sins, I'm confident this forgiveness of sins is what this entire creed is leading towards, right? It's building towards something, and I think it's building towards the forgiveness of sin, right? Think about it. I believe in God for what? I believe in Jesus for what? I believe that Jesus rose from the dead for what purpose? Well, it was so that our sins could be forgiven. And in our text this morning, in John chapter 8, we see the beauty of on full display of what it looks like to have our sins forgiven. However, in order to understand why our sins need to be forgiven, why this idea is so important throughout Scripture, we must first understand the depths of sin. We must understand how corrosive and destructive and pervasive sin is. Unfortunately, in far too many of our American churches, we don't want to talk about sin. Because if we talk about sin, people won't want to come back. Right? People will just get convicted and they might not get what they wanted from the sermon. There's a glaring problem with that understanding. If we don't talk about the bad news, we have no good news. If we don't talk about the hopelessness without Jesus, we cannot talk about the hope we have in him. Without sin, if we don't talk about it, there is no need for forgiveness. Furthermore, without a proper foundation of sin and God's holiness, this text just means nice Jesus and mean Pharisees, right? That's all this text communicates, is Jesus is nice, be like Jesus. The Pharisees are mean, don't be like him. That's all this text means if we don't understand sin. But there is a glaring problem even further with the society that we live in today. According to the culture, there is no God. And because there is no God, there is no such thing as objective right and wrong. If there's no God, there's no sin. And because there's no sin, that means I can do anything I want to do, and you can't tell me not to. A world without God is a world without sin, and a world without sin is a world full of chaos. I've heard, in, just to, to really like you think people don't actually believe this. I've watched videos of people who would say that the Holocaust was not an objectively bad thing because they don't have a definition of sin. It was just people doing what people want to do. We can't, how are we to judge? We can't, this is insanity. This is a world without God. And a world without God is a world without hope. But before we understand what sin really is and how bad it is, we must understand who God is. You've heard it said, uh, looking at life through rose-colored glasses, what does that mean? Everything you see has this rosy tint to it. You look at your spouse, rosy tint. Look at maybe your children, 
your job, everything is colored by this rosy tint that we have. I'm not arguing for rose-colored glasses, but what I want to argue for this morning is for us to have a thoroughly God-centered worldview, God-centered glasses. We need to see everything in light of who God is. What I mean by having a God-centered worldview is simple. God is the center of everything. God is the center of the universe. He is the center of everything. Not you, not me, not your feelings and not my feelings. Not your dog or your cat or whatever other pets you might have. Not your children, your home, your spouse, your favorite sports team. And not even the sun is the center of the universe. Understand what I mean by that when I say the sun is not. I mean God is the center of the universe. God is the creator, the designer, and the sustainer of all things. And he is glorious. Everything we see in this world was created by God and for God everything. God created bears and giraffes. God created alligators. He made sea monsters, dinosaurs, and God made dragons. God made sunsets and waterfalls and mountains and plains. He created the northern lights, maple syrup, tulips, and cacti. God made the Milky Way galaxy, and then just because he could, he put a hundred billion stars in that galaxy, and he knows the name of every single one of them. God is glorious, and he is the center of the universe. Furthermore, God is merciful to us. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He abounds. He brings forth loving kindness and faithfulness. God is the faithful, covenant-keeping God. God is the king of the universe and the ruler of kings on earth. God is the fountain of all wisdom, the possessor of all power, the essence of purity, the crowning glory of perfection, and he dwells in the unapproachable splendor of holiness. Friends, God is glorious. Whatever God is, though, sin is just the opposite. All those things I just listed off, sin is the complete opposite. God is order, bringing forth order to our world. Sin is full of chaos, and it brings chaos wherever it goes. God is beautiful. Sin is decay and destruction. God brings forth life, and sin brings forth death. St. Augustine has defined sin as believing the lie. Sin is believing the lie that humanity is self-created, self-dependent, and therefore self-sustained. In other words, what sin tries to do is destroy the knowledge of God. Sin seeks to destroy the knowledge of God. But because it cannot destroy God, what sin does is it tries to destroy the knowledge of God within us. Sin tries to convince you and I, all of humanity, that God does not exist, and if he does, he certainly cannot be trusted. Sin tries to whisper in our ear, did God really say that? Surely you can't actually trust God, right? I mean, you can't see him. You're going to rely on, on his word? Are you, you really want to do that? Sin whispers in our ear, God doesn't really know what's best for you. Sin says, give in to your desires. You deserve it. 
No one will ever find out. Go ahead. It's okay. That's what sin does. Sin whispers in our ear. Sin tries to convince us that instead of God being the center of the universe, the universe really revolves around me, myself, and I. It revolves around my desires. What happens when humanity begins to believe this lie of sin? We begin to act like it. We begin to act like the universe revolves around us. And sometimes we're, we're completely oblivious to it. How was church today? Uh, I didn't really get anything out of it. It wasn't for you. It was for God. You see how self-centered we can become? If you remember the last time I preached, I dealt with how Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 is the foundation of all of reality. Everything is built off Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Consider this played out real time in Genesis chapter 3. God says to Adam, he says, Adam, look at what I've done. I've made the heavens. I've brought wildlife to you. I have done all of these things. I've provided for you. You can trust me. You have, I have one command for you. Adam, do not eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't do it. And instead of trusting in God's gracious provision, what Adam does is he disobeys by eating from the tree. He listened to that voice of sin that whispered in his ear. Did God really say? Surely God didn't mean that when he said what he said. Adam, God doesn't know what's best for you. Just give in. It'll be okay. And when he did, Adam bought into the lie that he was self-created, self-dependent, and self-sustained. But sin is not just something that happened in Genesis chapter 3, right? Sin is not some couple thousand years ago and that's what that was and we don't, we're not touched by that anymore. Sin is not bound by space or time. It does not know national or state boundaries. Sin is not something that we can simply eradicate with political policies or social efforts. Sin does not care what ethnicity you are, where your mother came from, or what language you speak. It does not care about your, en- your, ge- your gender, your age, or your job. Sin is pervasive. Sin affects everything, and it infects us as humanity. Sin is a cruel master that demands that all obey its voice. We can sit here and think, okay, sin is everywhere. That's, that's really bad, but that, that doesn't affect me. We're not helpless victims of sin. We are not blameless, not in the slightest. Not only does sin affect us, that's true, sin does affect us, but it also infects us. Sin c- comes at us from the outside, but it also flows from within, Human beings are totally and entirely sinful, and we love it that way. Sin is that hideous strength within that corrupts our thoughts. It conquers our emotions, and it controls our desires. Sin is everywhere. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that the mind that is set on the flesh, right, the sinful man is hostile to God. The sinful man does not submit to God's law. He doesn't want to do it. And he also cannot submit to God's law. Those who are sinful cannot please God. We can try to escape it. We can try to run from it. We can try to even deny it. But sin is far too powerful and far too deceptive to allow us to escape. The way that sin keeps us from running to God is it produces shame within us. And we don't like shame. 
Adam and Eve felt shame and they ran away from God and they used fig leaves to cover themselves up. Sin says you have sinned before God and you are in trouble. And what sin does, what shame does, is it forces us to run from God. It's, it still convinces us God still can't be trusted. That's what shame produces within us. Some of us run to alcohol thinking that maybe if I just have another glass, it'll wash my shame away. Others, it might be drugs, that maybe I can numb myself. Maybe I can medicate this shame away. For most of us, though, those maybe are kind of on the more extreme ends, but most of us, it's just self-righteousness. We try to convince ourselves that, okay, I might be bad, but I'm not like that guy. I'm not like that girl, right? You begin to point fingers in every which direction, it's self-righteousness. Whatever it may be for each one of you, we all have our sins and we all have our tendencies, things that we lead to and our defaults. Each one of these measures, each one of these measures to hide, to cover our sin is nothing more than trying to fill the ocean with a drop of water. To turn to anything but God to deal with our shame is like trying to fill the entire ocean of the world with a single drop of water. It is an impossible and worthless task. Not only does sin leave us as God's creatures broken, empty, and unsatisfied, but it leaves us open to God's judgment. Again, if God is good, he must punish that which is evil. Every good judge punishes that which is evil. If God did not punish evil, he would be unjust. But because God is good, he becomes man's greatest problem. Man's greatest problem is the goodness of God. It's not climate change. It's not political policies and agendas or even World War III. That's not man's greatest problem. It is the goodness of God. Because God is good, he must punish that which is evil. And we as humans are holy and entirely sinful. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. Every man, woman, and child ever have lived has fallen short of the glory of God and has sinned. We love it when the bad guy in the movie gets justice, right? We, we love that. There's something within us that's, that cries out for justice when we see it in our world. The guy that flies past you on the highway and almost takes out your mirror, we love it when we see a quarter mile down the road that he's pulled over, right? You almost wanna honk and wave and say, yes, you got what was coming to you. We love that. But we also must recognize that we must be judged alongside of them. By all reasonable accounts, each one of us should be judged according to every impure thought, every unrighteous action, and every careless word our mouths have ever spoken. Now, if this is the depths of our sin, that it is so pervasive, it is so corruptive and corrosive, where are we to turn? Do we turn to one another? Do we turn to ourselves? What hope do we have? We must be like the psalmist who says, I lift up mine eyes unto the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. We must look outside of ourselves, outside of our broken world and look up to God who created the heavens and the earth. More precisely, we must look to the cross of Jesus Christ because it is there on the cross that God put an end to sin. It is there on the cross that God dealt with the sinfulness of man. It is there on the cross that God did what we could never do. God defeated sin. And it is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that God defeated sin, death, 
hell and the grave once and for all. It was at a moment where sin could not be any darker, where hopelessness could not be any more real, that God's mercy burst forth and shines the brightest. Joy comes in the morning, particularly the morning that Jesus rose from the dead. As one great hymn says, it was on the mountain of crucifixion where fountains opened deep and wide, and it was through the floodgates of God's mercy that flowed a vast and gracious tide. John the Baptist, John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist sees Jesus, and what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus takes away our sin. The penalty that was due us was laid upon Jesus. He is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Jesus was judged in our place, and now God offers free and boundless grace to any and to all who would come to Jesus. This, what I've just laid out, is the foundation of our text this morning. This is the foundation. Without understanding this, we cannot understand what our text even means. Again, this is nothing, this just becomes nothing more than Pharisees are mean, don't be like them. Jesus is nice, be like Jesus. That is not what this text deals with at all. Our text this morning deals with the reuniting of unholy man and holy God together forever. So let's turn our attention to the text in John 8. We'll see three components to the forgiveness that Jesus offers. The first thing we see is that in order to experience the forgiveness that Jesus offers to us, we must have an awareness of our guilt. As we look at John chapter 8, as I read earlier, Jesus is minding his own business. The day before, he was teaching in the temple, and he comes down off the mountain, he gets some rest, now he's back in the temple again doing what he often does. Jesus was known for his public teaching, so he does that. He's teaching in the temple, teaching all the people. The Pharisees then bring a woman to Jesus who is clearly a sinner. She was caught by the Pharisees in the very act of adultery. However, the problem that, de that Jesus deals with here is not initially the woman's sin. It's not initially her sin. Jesus deals with that later. What Jesus deals with is the, the sin of the Pharisees. The problem here is that they were unwilling to acknowledge their guilt. They were just as guilty before God as the adulterous woman. They just didn't recognize it. They used the law as a shield and hid behind it and said, look, I don't commit adultery, so I'm, I'm okay. I'm, I'm good, I'm clear, but Jesus, look at that woman over there. Look at her, look at what she's doing. She's doing this, go and get her. The issue here is not that the woman committed adultery, it's that the Pharisees thought they didn't. You know what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6? Everyone who even looks upon someone with lustful intent has already committed adultery in their hearts. The Pharisees were so concerned about this woman's external sin of adultery that they didn't even think to consider the adultery that resides within their own hearts. Their darting eyes, their impure thoughts. They were so concerned about everyone else they didn't even see it themselves. Sometimes we want to read ourselves into biblical stories, right? We want to, we want to eh, that's okay. I, sometimes it's fun to do that. We can, you know, be this guy or we can be that girl. And well, that's a good thing to do. There are very noble people in scripture that we want to model. But if we do that, if you're going to do that, at least just be honest with who you are, right? Don't try and be someone that you're not. Um, sometimes we think maybe we're David, right? We're this meek and humble giant slaying shepherd, 
right? We're, we're, we're the guy who rips apart bears with his bare hands and, and takes it one small stone and has the faith to move a mountain and slings it right at Goliath's head. That's who we are. Maybe we're the prophet uh, Elijah. Elijah's doing battle. We think that we're doing battle with God's enemies, trying to call fire down from heaven. We're, we're not David. We're the Israelite army that's cowering in fear because Goliath is just too big. We're not Elijah. We're the prophets of Baal who are going after other gods. We have to be honest with who we are. And many of us this morning are just like the Pharisees. We're quick to point fingers at everyone else, saying they're the problem. Look at what they did, Jesus. Aren't you going to go get her? Aren't you going to go get him? We have a rigid understanding of law and grace. We think that what all the church needs today is for people to just stop their sinning and Jesus will all of a sudden be happy. We think that if the people over there just stopped what they were doing, then God would begin to build his church. It's like when you were a child, or maybe you have siblings, or if you have children, this is probably very applicable. Um, when, you know, the, the morning after, like, your kids come to you and they say, hey, mom, dad, or again, maybe it was one of your siblings, hey, so-and-so snuck out of their room last night and grabbed a cookie after you told us to go to bed. Look at what they did. Go get them. To which any wise parent responds and says, hey, I, I know that. Thanks for sharing. How do you know? Right? And, and then you begin to see that the excuses just pile on, right? The kids just make any, any excuse they have. Well, I, I was thirsty. You got water right by your bedside. I don't think so. What? And then the truth comes out. Well, okay, I was up watching TV, but look what they did. Go get it, right? We, we point fingers. We're so quick to point fingers. We're so concerned about the external sins of others, we become like the child pointing the finger at their siblings without realizing we're just as guilty, in order to receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers, we must have our guilt, have, have an awareness of our guilt before God. Our sin comes in all shapes and sizes. Sometimes we think that there's a hierarchy to sins, right? There's venial sins and then there's mortal sins. There's sins, then there's bad sins, and then there's really bad sins. Remember, Jesus equates thinking about lustful thoughts as committing the physical act of adultery. Cheating on your taxes, holding grudges, lust, gossip, lying, having a prideful spirit, hating your brother or sister, fornication, disrespecting parents, not loving your wife, not respecting your husband, revenge, coveting your neighbor's boat coveting your neighbor's car, coveting anything that someone else has that you don't. Selfishness. The list goes on and on and on. What the Pharisees did not do was acknowledge their guilt before God. We must not be like them. We cannot be like the Pharisees. They didn't acknowledge their guilt before God. Instead, they pointed the finger at everybody else. We must acknowledge our guilt before God. Well, okay, how do we do that? Okay, okay I'm guilty. How do we do that? Let's look at this woman. We aren't really told much about the woman in our story. All we really know is that she was guilty, right? She was caught in the act of adultery. That's guilty. Open and shut case, you know, no, no need to even really go to trial. She was guilty. The Pharisees knew it. She certainly knew it. The crowd before Jesus knew it. And Jesus also knew that she was guilty. The Pharisees were right about what her sins deserved. 
Leviticus 22 and or Leviticus chapter 20, Deuteronomy 22, both state that those who are found committing adultery are to be stoned. Capital punishment was deserving. But unlike the Pharisees who were unwilling to acknowledge their guilt, pointing fingers at everyone else, this woman has nothing before Jesus. Think about it. She was caught in the act of adultery. She's exposed before him. She has nothing, no defense, no excuses. And if Jesus is unwilling to show her mercy, she's got nothing, right? She's left open to his judgment if he's not going to show her mercy. She had her deepest, darkest secret exposed on two separate accounts. Once when they, were, when they caught her and the other time when she was paraded before Jesus. Imagine what it would be like for you to have your deepest, darkest secret, your deepest, darkest sin that no one knows about but you exposed before a crowd. What do you think that would feel like? Embarrassment? Shame? That pit that wells up within your stomach that says, I have to throw up because I can't deal with this? It would feel as the sun, the heat of the sun was beating on your brow and there was no relief. Nevertheless, God desires us to be just like this woman. No excuses, no defending, no running, no hiding not comparing our sin to others and certainly not making excuses for them. In order to receive the forgiveness that Jesus offers, we must acknowledge our guilt before him. Our guilt is not a bad thing. Shame is bad, but guilt is good. Guilt is that thing that rises up within you that says, I've sinned and I must return to God. Where shame drives us away from God, guilt drives us to him. See, I recognize this. Acknowledging our guilt before God can be terrifying, right? What it does is it says, I'm guilty before you, God. I deserve your judgment. This is what I deserve. I'm guilty. But the great and glorious promise of the gospel is that Jesus only saves sinners. He has not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The woman walks away from this account forgiven. She had no excuses before God. The Pharisees walk away unforgiven because of their unwillingness to recognize their sin. This woman should really serve as an example to us. She demonstrates what it looks like to come to Jesus with nothing. She also serves as an example to us that there's no sin that Jesus is not willing to forgive. His capacity to forgive is boundless. There is no darkness that you have today that Jesus' light will not shine upon. No matter how full of sin you are this morning, how stuck you feel because of what your sin has brought or how overcome by shame you might be, Jesus is willing to forgive. So come to Jesus. When we acknowledge our guilt before God, we confess that we are sinners. Yes, God, I am a sinner. What God does is he removes our condemnation. The forgiveness of Jesus removes our condemnation. Jesus tells the crowd, he said, if you are without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. One by one, convicted of their sin, They just trickle out. Oldest to the youngest, they're all convicted of their sin. If there was ever a moment for this woman to fear, it was right now. Jesus was the only one without sin, and he authored the law that commanded capital punishment. Jesus was perfectly within his right to throw the stones at this woman. But Jesus looks to her. Look at what Jesus says in verse 10. Jesus says to her, woman, where are they? Look look at me, where are your accusers? Where are those who are going to condemn you? Who is going to bring a charge against you? Let's see, are there any? And she responds and says, no one, Lord. 
there's none. This is the most precious truth of Christianity that has been celebrated for centuries. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Because of what Christ has done, God will never, ever, ever deal with us on the basis of our sin ever again. Ever. Martin Lloyd-Jones has said that a Christian is a person who has been taken entirely outside of the realm of any possibility or conceivable condemnation. God does not ladle on grace with a teaspoon, but he pours on grace like a flood of mighty rivers that flow from the wounds of Jesus. Lord, I've treated my spouse poorly this week. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, I was impatient at work this week. I lashed out. I said this. I shouldn't have said that. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, I have failed as a disciple. I sinned again. I said what I should not have. I did what I should not have done. I've acted in a way that's displeasing to you. I, I, the list goes on and on. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God says, my son, my daughter, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Come and rest in me. It is a great tragedy for me to think that there are Christians who believe that the removal of their condemnation was somehow a one-time deal. When I believe in Jesus, I'm good. I'm in the positive. God loves me and I'm good. But then when I sin, particularly if it's a really bad sin, God, God, God is unwilling to forgive me. Now, now I'm into the negative here. And the only way to get out of that, to get back into right standing with God, is to pull myself up by my bootstraps and do better and try harder. That is a doctrine from the pit of hell itself. Those whom Jesus saves, he saves them completely, entirely. It is finished. It is done. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Christian, God calls you to look around and see who there is to condemn you. There is none, not even him. Finally, we see that the forgiveness that Jesus offers renews a dead life within. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, If anyone, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. The old is gone. The old is dead. Behold, new life has begun. The new has come. Jesus' final words to this woman were, go and sin no more. We all have sin that resides within us, but it no longer has power over us. We don't need to listen to that voice of sin that whispers in our ear anymore. No longer is sin our master. We are now free to serve God with the new life he has given the evidence of a transformed life in Jesus is not penance, okay? It's not doing better and trying harder. It's not pulling yourself up and saying, I need to work my way out of this. What categorizes a life of a Christian is repentance. Acknowledging our guilt before God. No excuses, no defense. God, I'm guilty. It understands that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, So if we confess our sin to God, he is what? Faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We confess our sins to God, we move forward in faith, forgiveness, and freedom. Jesus is not somehow our personal guilt remover so that we can go live a life happy and guilt-free without any consequences of sin. Jesus is the king of the universe who purchased for himself a people so that they might now serve him without the fear of condemnation. The new life that God has given us in Jesus is not to be lived for oneself. God has pulled us out of that pit and we should not return to it. 
But instead now, we live our lives to God's glory, God's honor, and God's praise alone. Jesus came to resurrect the dead life that sin killed within you by replacing your heart of stone, that old, wicked, dead, and waterless fountain with a new heart of flesh that now springs forth with life, praise, and thanksgiving to God. Jesus came to renew your dead life by removing that barrier of sin and shame and giving you new life so that you might now live a life free of condemnation and in Christ Jesus, that you might live a life now that is in joyful communion with the triune God of heaven. Ultimately, we see that Jesus forgives sins. And so church, come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you are indeed a great and awesome God. You are the God who created the heavens and the earth and all that is within them. And you are also the God who delights, Lord, you delight in showing steadfast mercy. You delight in pouring out praise over your people. So Lord, let us this morning rejoice in the freedom that we have in Jesus, that there is indeed no condemnation, that we are not to now live our lives for our own glory, for our own fame, for our own efforts. We are to now live our lives wholly devoted to you. Lord, we thank you for the free call of the gospel that all who would come unto Jesus will indeed be like this woman and have their condemnation removed and their sins forgiven. Lord, we thank you. What a savior we have in Jesus and what a friend. Lord, we bless you. We ask that you would do all of this because we ask in Jesus' name and amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org slash connect to introduce yourself today. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family.